What would you ask for? If you got your wish, what would you say? This is what I would like. Maybe you're, you would ask the question, well, who's asking? And uh, what are the parameters for that? Is this like pretend? Is this like a genie with three wishes? Or is this like winning the lottery? Who's asking? First time I saw <clears throat> the lottery reality, it was a convenience store and people were filed out the door and I wondered what, I was just there to get like a soda and wondered what was going on. And people were banking on the fact that maybe their lives would change if they won the lottery. Well, who's doing the asking? What if God asked you that question? Ask anything you want and I will give it to you. What would you ask for? That's not a made-up story. That actually happened. And it happened to the person that we're going to spend time looking at this morning and we're going to spend some time with. It happened to King Solomon. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5, Solomon was given this gift, if you will, from God the Father. He said, ask for whatever you wish for me and I will give it to you. What would you have asked for? Well, Solomon asked for wisdom the discipline, the training to navigate life. Uh, one person has said that wisdom is learning to navigate life and its realities when rules don't apply, when you come to the fork in the road. That's what Solomon asked for. And because he asked for that, God granted him both wealth and honor. And he was granted wisdom, unsurpassed wisdom. And he became a very wealthy man as well, too. His influence was huge. His, his father had warned him, David, his father, had warned him that if he walked in his decrees, the decrees of the Lord, God would bless him. In First Chronicles chapter 22, it says this, If you will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees of the law of Moses that God gave to him. Listen to God's word. His dad told him in 1 Chronicles 28.7, I'll establish his throne forever if you keep my commandments and my rules. And David repeated that, and he said, if you forsake him, he will cast you off. So we're going to spend time with Solomon. And as we've looked at kings today, we're going to see Solomon had a divided heart. What did that look like? Well, we're on a series that we've been walking through called The Heart of the King. And here's where we've been. Here's where we've been. We first looked at, this is our first, third king that we're going to take a look at. The first king was Saul. Um, he had a disobedient heart. That's what you can remember about Saul. Saul was a natural leader. You can't miss kind of leader, yet he disobeyed. He disobeyed repeatedly, not just because of Samuel's instruction, but because of who Samuel represented, the Lord. He was a disobedient king. But we are to be encouraged because we would have a king who would not be disobedient. In fact, that king is described in Hebrews chapter 12 too by enduring the cross and not despising the shame for me and for you. This king that came in on a donkey on Palm Sunday, he came and he was obedient even to death on the cross. Then we looked at a second king, David. And we learned that David had a repentant heart. 
In fact, the Bible kind of puts this awkward paradox about David, and it makes us feel uncomfortable that David is described as a man after God's own heart. But how can a man after God's own heart be a murderer, an adulterer, a coveter, a stealer? How could he do that? David says in Psalm 51, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. And so we have another king, a king who is written about in a hymn called Man of Sorrows. Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Alleluia, what a Savior. The third verse says this, guilty and helpless, lost we are. Anybody lost? Blameless Lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. Alleluia, what a Savior. And so we come to King Solomon. What a king but a divided king. Here's a little bit of a background before we jump into the message. A little bit of a background about King Solomon. I, I didn't know this, but uh, Bathsheba gave birth to him, and they named him Solomon, and his name meant peace. And the Bible tells us in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, that the lo Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through the prophet Nathan to name him Jedidiah, which means loved by God. Did you catch that? Solomon has two names. His first name means peace. Peace. The name the Lord gave him was loved by God. And he became the king of Israel, and it wasn't easy at first when he became the king. He survived two conspiracies or insurrections, as you would, would one before his dad died and one when his after his dad died, same person, his older stepbrother. It was not easy, but let's take a look. Father in heaven, I pray that you would give us the ears to hear, hearts to receive. Let us learn from a one that you loved greatly. We look at his life not with criticism, but with praying for discernment, that you would protect us, that our hearts would not be divided that we would see the divine grace that's overlapping and overwhelming, though subtle it may be. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to uh, turn and find a copy of the scriptures there in front of you. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 1 through 11. That's a lot of scriptures that we're going to do a quick flyover. But I want to invite you to find a copy of the scriptures. And also, it may help for the bulletin insert just to write some things in that you might follow away at as we look at a divided heart this heart of a king and we start looking right away at the first thing about Solomon that we note is that there we go Solomon's heart was divided as it was shown in wisdom and wealth and that first very first um, word that we take a look at comes from 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3. And there's a small little word that's an adverb. And when you read this verse, you might go, Ooh, man, I wish it wasn't in there. Why did it have to be in there? And what's that adverb? Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given to him by his father David, except nuts. Wish it wasn't there. The adverb can be translated, however or nevertheless, except that he offered sacrifices and burnt 
incenses on the high place. Those high places would eventually <clears throat> lead to full-blown worship amongst foreign idols. And this is the chapter of Solomon's favorite request, where God says, ask anything that you wish. Anything. What would you ask for? Solomon asked for wisdom and discernment. And again, if you didn't catch that, there's an Old Testament professor by the name of Gerhard von Rod, and he said, wisdom is competency with life's request when rules do not apply. When the realities of life come in and you are called to act on it. When there becomes a fork in the road and you go, what am I going to do? And in <clears throat> Solomon, or 1 Kings chapter 3, there becomes a very famous case that comes to Solomon. Two prostitutes have had children. And when they went to bed at night, both of the babies were alive. But when they woke up in the morning, one of them was dead, and there was a switch that happened. And that case was brought to Solomon. And he said, take out a sword. And it wasn't anything to do with the sword, but it was to do with who was the real mom. And the real mom said, don't kill the child. Give it to the other woman. And one of the women said, the other woman said, no, no one's going to have the baby. Cut the child in half. And Solomon said, it is the one that's the real mom. The result of that, look what it says in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 28, on page 288. When all of Israel heard the verdict the king had given, they held the king in awe because they saw that he had wisdom from God to administer justice. So what was that thing with the high places? What was that thing about the offerings of the sacrifices? Those would eventually lead to full-blown worship of other idols. His wisdom and his wealth caused a massive impact on the country. Take a look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20. I know we're going to go through this really quick, but... We want to look at a divided heart. That's what the point is. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 20. The people of Judah were as numerous as sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and what does the Bible say? They were happy. Wow. His walking with the Lord impacted a whole country, a whole group of people. They ate, they drank, they were happy. His wisdom was recognized. In 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23, it says this. I'm on page 297. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all other kings, and the whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom of God and put in his heart. So, Pastor Kirk, what happened? What happened with this one who had been given a blank check, been given wisdom, been given wealth? What happened? The ESV Study Bible, one of the reasons why I like Study Bibles so much is because they give some insight. You can read some verses and you think, I didn't catch that. I didn't pick that up. And the ESV Study Bible said about Solomon, they said he had tainted glory. Tainted glory. He had wisdom and wealth, but he contrasted that with forced labor. 
for all his building projects and unjustly accumulating wealth as found in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 26. So he's kind of living in two camps. He kind of is. See, God had given a warning in Deuteronomy chapter 17, given a warning years earlier, maybe a thousand years earlier, through his servant Moses. And this is the caution that he gave to kings. Deuteronomy chapter 17 on page 164. The king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. Not to do that. But more importantly, he said, you must not take many wives or your heart will be led astray. There is a warning. You must not accumulate large amounts of silver or gold. When I began thinking about this series last summer and formulating this series and how, what, what kings are we going to take a look at and what would, it, what would it be called, I began thinking that this message would be entitled, Meet the Wisest Fool Who Ever Lived. Meet the Wisest Fool Who Ever Lived. Is this what wisdom looks like? Well, in this message, I, I hope that not only that you hear about a divided heart, but you also see the divine grace of God. The divine grace of God, one who is wiser still. Solomon goes on to write the book of Proverbs, and he talks about this one of divine grace. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 8. The author is Solomon, and prophetically he talks about wisdom that's personified. Wisdom that takes on flesh. And this wisdom that was there before the creation of the world. Proverbs chapter 8 on page 548. Did you find it there? Listen to wisdom. Wisdom personified. Wisdom who went to the cross. Every time you w hear the word it or I, excuse me, the word I, substitute the word Jesus there. The Lord brought him forth as the first of his works. I'm beginning in verse 22. Did you find it there? The Lord brought me, Jesus, forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. Jesus was formed long ago. At the beginning when the world came to be, when there was no watery depths, Jesus was given birth. When there was no spring overflow with water before the mountains were settled in place before the hills, Jesus was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, Jesus was there. Jesus was there when God the Father set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, the, above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not be overstepped, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. There, I, Jesus, was constantly at his side. And when the Father said it was good, Jesus went, really good. Wow. You may say, you just made that up. No, I didn't. The Apostle Paul writes about wisdom personified. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, he says, Christ, Paul writing here, Christ became to us wisdom from God. Paul writes again in 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Christ is the one whom th all things were made through him. And then Paul writes again in Colossians 1, 17, in Christ 
all these things were held together. The wisdom of God is the Son of God. He is the one that the book of Proverbs from beginning to end is all about. It all points to our king. This king who came, Palm Sunday, he is wisdom personified. And his, this wisdom says to you, I want to know you, Ray. I want to know you, Mike. I don't want to know you, Fred. And you can know me. Wow! Look at a divided heart, but know that wisdom is one that wants you in a personal relationship. Solomon's divided heart was then seen in the houses that he built. 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Solomon was building his own house for 13 years, and he finished his entire house. Solomon was building his own house for 13 years, and he finished his entire house. Now, you might eventually read that, maybe in the NIV, and go, what's wrong with that? So, so what's the big deal? Well, this is where we miss out a little bit on English and original language. And especially the ESV does it a little bit better. The ESV translation does a little bit better. So let me just have you take a look at that verse. Do you find it there in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1? It says, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete or his entire, the construction of his palace. That actual word is house. And what, what we miss here in the original language and English is a strong contrast. If you jump up to verse 38, just right before the break, in the ESV it says this, in the 11th year, in the month of bull, which is the 8th month, the house was finished in all its parts according to its specification. And here's the difference. There's a subtle contrast. Two houses. Solomon built two houses. His house and the Lord's house. Get that? Same word. His house, the Lord's house. One is called a temple. One is called a palace. But the actual words are the same. And what the author is trying to say is, do you see the difference? Which house did he spend more time on? The Lord's house or his house? There's a chip of compromise there. And then the author of the book of Kings writes this, that his entire whole house was finished. Solomon's whole house was finished. His character is showing. He has a divided heart. He spent more time building his own house, his entire house, than the Lord's house. The Lord's house was marvelous. We don't know much about Solomon's palace, or I'm not gonna fo at least I'm not going to focus on that. But the Lord's temple was extraordinary. The finances for it, temple details are spelled out in 1 Chronicles 22. The way that the wealth that was staggering, and I don't know how David got his wealth. And if you live with that tension, David had a lot of wealth, didn't God say? Be careful about the wealth that you accumulate. David didn't listen to that advice either. The temple is laid out in the different systems that David put in place. 
First Chronicles 23 talk about Levites. First Chronicles 24 talks about priests. First Chronicles 25 talks about musicians. And this temple that he built was prominent. Solomon expanded the city. Jerusalem in David's time was extended north. And the walls were extended to protect the city. And the walls were extended to go around the temple. And wherever you were in that area, you could see the temple. It was incredible. The temple wouldn't stand forever. In fact, there would be three temples when our Lord and King walked on planet Earth. This temple would be destroyed. There would be another temple that would come called Zerubbabel's temple. And then there was a third temple, Herod's temple. And it took 46 years to build Herod's temple. He expanded it and made it even bigger than Solomon's temple. And then Jesus had the gall. Or was it prophetic when he said, I will tear this temple down in John chapter 2 and I will rebuild it in three days. And they said, what? You're going to tear this temple down? It took 46 years to build this, and you're going to rebuild it in uno, dos, tres? That's what you're going to do? The Bible says he was talking about something else. What was he talking about? He was talking to the temple about his own body. And because he's the firstborn, because he is the first fruits, because he is an elder brother, because he is our king, that's the first temple. And we're the temples that follow. The Apostle Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. He says this, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Jesus' good friend Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, You yourselves are living stones, and you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You aren't your own. You're a new creation. When, when we leave here at the end of this service, what would happen if this went on the news? Releasing now from Bethesda Lutheran are hundreds of small temples. That's what happens. The Holy Ghost is inside you. And we leave as his temple representatives because of his transforming power. Because you are a new creation in Christ. If you want to know more about temple, uh, go to bibleproject.org backslash temple. It's printed in your bulletin inserts. It's fascinating. They do a fabulous job on understanding what temples are like. And then if you say to yourself, I don't feel much like a temple. Could God use me? I want to invite you to go to our website, c3ec.org forward slash growth, and just click on something called SHAPE. How are you shaped? And that's an acronym that stands, S is for spiritual gifts, H stands for heart, your passion, A is your abilities, P is your personality, and E is your experience. All of that shape is how God uses you as his temple this week. 
it gets very, very practical. God takes your mess. He takes your pain. He takes your abilities. He takes your personality. He takes your spiritual gifts, and he shapes you, and he forms you, and the Holy Spirit is breathed in you, and you leave as his representative. Think about that. Schools, work, neighborhood, family, relationships, as you travel, you are the traveling temple. Wow! How awesome is that? You see God's divine grace, even in a divided heart. The final way that we see Solomon's divided heart was he was led astray because of his love of foreign women. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign wives besides Pharaoh's daughters, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because surely they will turn your hearts after foreign gods, Deuteronomy chapter 17. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. Another English translation says he clung to them. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wife, wives led him astray. And if you have your own Bibles, you should start circling some words here. As Solomon grew old, his wives, turn, circle this, turned his heart after other gods, and his heart, circle this, was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as circle this, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtorah, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and circle this, he did not follow the Lord completely as David his father has done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, a detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives. I'm just going to read that again and just let that impact just kind of go, oh, really? He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away. Wow. 550 years later, Nehemiah, who's in the backdrop of Zerubbabel's temple, and Ezra chapter 3 says that elderly people, those who had gray in their hair, sobbed because Zerubbabel's temple wasn't anything like Solomon's temple. Why? What was the difference? Nehemiah reads this, these verses or says these verses. It's kind of like an obituary, a look back. And he says this, Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by God. That was his name, Jedediah. Loved by God. And God made him king over all Israel. But... Read that underlined scripture if you can see it on your mark. It said, read, even he was led into sin by foreign women. As you walk through it and try to get your head around it, certainly there was the sexual overload, if you will, the gangrene of sensuality multiplied and elongated and expansive. 
It spread to high places and foreign gods. Others, Abraham, Jacob, Saul, David, Rehoboam, all had concubines and other wives, and the Lord never blessed their families. He wasn't the first. But to this expanse, incredible. If one wife could not satisfy him, a thousand wives would never. Proverbs chapter 27 says this, Hell and destruction are never filled. So are the eyes of ones who are not satisfied. It wasn't only the sexual aspect and the sensuality aspect as gross and perverse and heart-deadening as it was. But the reason why I read that verse again because of the foreign wives was because when foreign wives were married like that, it was often made to form political alliances. But the Lord had put a restriction on that, understanding that the foreign wives would also bear children and their culture and their values and their influence and their impact would affect generations. You see that connection? Deuteronomy chapter 17 said, don't do that. And I, I just, as I, I was telling someone this week, I said, I've been living with Solomon all week, and you read about the 700 wives and the 300 concubines and the sensuality and the sexual perversion and the sexual overload, but the expanse as well of foreign God perverted worship was expansive. It was almost like, you've got to be kidding me. How many foreign temples were there? A lot. We don't have a number on them, but they were a lot. And as a result of this, 1 Kings, beginning in chapter 12 through 2 Kings, follows a divided heart into a divided nation. The rest of Kings is the story of a divided nation. We see his divided heart. But then it affected a divided nation, and the nation of Israel gets split in half, and I'll do this really quick. There was northern kingdoms and southern kingdoms. There were ten tribes and two tribes. The northern were called Israel, and the southern were called Judah. The northern tribes had 20 kings. The southern tribes had 19 kings. The northern kings had zero Goose egg kings. The southern kingdom had eight good kings. And every king, and when you read 2 Kings beginning in verse 12 and then through 2 Kings, you, you, you need a scorecard or at least a legal pad or something. To, how, how, do, how do I keep everybody straight? It is super confusing. Sorry about that, but it is what it is. And all the kings are rated or graded according to the scriptures on three things. Do they worship Israel alone? Do they rid Israel of idolatry? And are they faithful to the covenant? Or are they corrupt? Those are the three things. Those are the three test questions, if you will. Do they worship Israel alone? Do they rid Israel of idolatry? Or are they faithful to the covenant? Or are they corrupt? In these books as well, we meet Elijah and Elisha. 
So at this part in the sermon, you're going, this is really heavy. This is really hard. Where's the gospel? Where's divine grace in this? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36, listen to the gospel. God is angry with Solomon. So is he going to destroy Israel? Listen to the gospel. Verse 36, I will give one tribe to his son so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem and the city where I chose to put my name. God is faithful to his name. God is faithful to his promises, even when we are not. That's why it's called the gospel. That's why it's called the gospel. Now, in application, let me just say this. You have a role. You have an important role of legacy. If you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt, if you're an uncle, if you're a great-grandpa, if you're someone who doesn't have offspring of your own, you have a responsibility. And I want to challenge you to do this. I want to challenge you to make as a regular rhythm to pray for your grandkids, your children, your great-grandchildren, your nieces, your nephews. Pray for their spouse. Pray for their spouse. Julie and I spent uh, an intensive weekend with nine hours uh, working with a couple who are getting married. Pastor Kurt said, do they still want to get married after nine hours with you guys? <laughs> we had dinner with them on Friday, and I looked at them, and I said, believe it or not, who you marry will have more influence on you than even your family growing up. Some people say it's the second most important decision in your life. Following Christ is number one. I would like to tweak that and put this in your head. It's the 1B decision. 1A is what you do with Jesus. 1B is what you do with the one who will be a mate to your soul. Pray, intercede, fast, pray for them. Pray for them. That's your legacy. We can learn that from our friend Solomon who had a divided heart. Let me conclude with this. A uh, couple months ago, I was preparing for our next series that will start in June. And, uh, and I was listening to a man by the name of Ray Ortland, who is out, in, uh, out, out east someplace. And he reminded me about something. He said, I want to encourage you to be a scholar, to be a scholar of one book in the Bible. Find one book in the Bible and claim it as your own. If you want to cheat and get two, take an Old Testament one and a New Testament one. You're welcome to do that. So his was Romans. And I started chuckling, and I thought, well, I know what mine is right away. It's from this one called Solomon, A Divided Heart. It's what I've been reading from since I've been in high school. It's the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is the way of wisdom to deal with realities when rules don't apply and you get to the fork of the road and you have to make a decision on what's wise and discerning. And when I read this and I read the book of Proverbs and I think about a man with a divided heart, um, I ask the question, how do you read Proverbs, live in Proverbs, become a man of Proverbs and deal with all of that knowing what kind of person he was. Listen to what David said, his father. 
in Psalm 86, verse 11. It said, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness and give me, guess what the next words are? An undivided heart. That I may fear your name, that I will praise you, the Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. God has given you his holy word. It will change you. It will mark you with wisdom. It will guide you. It will navigate you. It will help you. It will equip you and help you to discern when you come to the fork in the road. A divided heart. God protect us from that. Heavenly Father, you love this man. His wealth and his honor and his riches were legendary. And I pray that you would guide our hearts, that we would not be divided, that we would confess sin, that we would turn from sin, that we would hear your word, that you'd protect us from idolatry, that we would repent and we would believe and that we would follow you. Your word has been preached. Holy Spirit, now do your work. In Jesus' name.